Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came also down to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you, worship team. You know, the book of Acts is uh, fascinating in so many different regards. It's a book of, really, it's a book of change. Um, and I, I have found that uh, there are people that I know in my life that absolutely resist change. I had a, I think I've told you about him before, my Uncle Bob uh, lived on a farm. It was the farm that his parents farmed, and he was farming, and now his son is farming. And, um, but I remember there was, I used to go over to his house uh, and visit, and uh, there was a particular, you know, around the corner of his house, there was this thing sticking out of the ground, and you'd, you'd almost trip on it every time you went, you went around the corner of the house, you'd trip on it, it just kind of stuck out of the ground, I don't know if it was a pipe or an old plowshare, I don't know what it was, something farmer-like sticking out of the ground, and um, I remember saying something to him one day, and he said, that, that thing's been there since I was a child, and I imagine it'll be there until I, until I die, and it was there until he until he died he just he wasn't big on change right uh all he had to do was take a shovel and pry that thing out of the ground and throw it to the side stop tripping on it nope nope i i'm imagining it brought back good memories for him every time he tripped on it. but then uh another time i was up in <clears throat> up in the state up north and i was uh when i was an engineer i was doing a machine runoff uh, a company had rebuilt our machine and uh we were, we were doing a machine runoff, and uh, the owner happened to be out doing something, running an errand or something, and so I was working with a technician. And the technician was making these fine little minute adjustments to the machine, and it just wasn't working. The machine was not performing up to specification. We were there to test the machine before shipping it back to our plant in Indiana. And uh, the owner comes walking in and uh, looks at what's going on, and, and grabs some tools and starts making massive adjustments to the machine. The technician's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I like radical change now. And lo and behold, we got the machine running. But people have different attitudes towards change. And that's what's going on in, this, uh, in the book of Acts. There's a lot of changes happening. Um, there's a book by a guy named John P. Cotter. Uh, he's a Harvard, Harvard Business School professor. I, he might have might be gone by now, but um, I found this book secondhand somewhere, and I picked it up, and I read it, uh, and what he says, the thesis of the book is basically this. You don't have to read it, because I'll just tell you what, it, what he says. He says, leaders, leaders don't set a good example. Leaders don't, aren't, their biggest thing that they do is not hiring and firing people and all this kinds of stuff, or managing the bottom line. The biggest thing that leaders do is lead an organization through change. That's the, the thesis of his book. It's the number one thing that a leader does is to lead people through change. Why? Because his argument is market conditions change. The culture changes. Everything's changing. And if the company doesn't change, it'll die. You got you to you grow. So here we see some very, this, this passage that Bethany just read, it's, what does it mean? Why, why is it here? 
And there's a really good reason why it's here, and it has to do with change. And I'm going to show that to you now. So let's look at the big question for today. What does Peter's ministry in Acts 9, how does Peter's ministry in Acts 9 further the mission to spread the good news? The, the movie camera of the book of Acts has been on, Acts 9 has been on Saul, his conversion, his early kind of ministry, what he's doing. And all of a sudden, Luke, the writer of Acts, Luke swings the camera over and now he's looking at Peter and looking at Peter and seeing what he's doing. And uh, it's really interesting stuff. So before we get too far into this, let me just kind of give you a transition update, okay? The change is happening. There's a transition going on. The gospel of Jesus Christ was first introduced to the Jews. Any doubt about that? Uh, the day that we consider to be the... Well, well, first of all, Jesus had 12 disciples, and all of his disciples were Jewish men. Uh, he operated in mostly Jewish territory, Galilee. He did some work in Samaria, but Galilee and Judea primarily. He operated in Jewish territory. And when Jesus died on the cross and, you know, rose again, and then he came back, and, and then he ascended into heaven, the church, the first day of the church on earth that we kind of celebrate is the day of Pentecost. Well, what's Pentecost? It's a festival that happens in Jerusalem, Jewish, on a Jewish holiday, Jewish. It started there. The gospel started. The good news of Jesus Christ took, it's got its root, got its start with the Jews. By the way, I didn't, I failed to say this in the first service. One of the things that's really interesting and unique about Christianity is that we are a continuation of another religion. Have you noticed that? There, there, we are grounded and founded on the Jewish religion, but then Christ came and now we're followers of Jesus Christ. And there still remains to this day the Jewish faith, whether a person is a Reformed or an Orthodox Jew. Uh, you know, we, we talk about Messianic Jews. That's really a Christian who has Jewish heritage, right? It's a, somebody who's a follower of Jesus Christ. But there's, there's a group of people on the earth that they're called the, the Jewish people who do not acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. And we're a continuation of that. Anyway, just interesting stuff. So the gospel starts with the Jews, and then it proceeds to the Samaritans. And if you know your, your history, if I have explained this at all, and I'll probably highlight a few other things this morning, the, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along because... The Samaritans to the Jews were compromisers. When the Assyrians had conquered them, when the Assyrians had conquered the northern territory, the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel was one country until after Solomon. After King Solomon, the country split into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom called Judah and the northern kingdom called Israel. And uh, they had separate kingdoms, separate worship sites, and they very often did not get along during those, those times. And God saw fit to send the Assyrians to, to conquer the northern kingdom called Israel and scatter it. Um, and when they did that, there was left jobs to do in the northern kingdom, in the cities, fields to be planted and for, uh, cultivated and all these kinds of things. And so they were, the, uh, foreigners were allowed to move in. Foreigners who brought with them different gods, different cultures, whatever, and the Jews that remained in the northern kingdom of Israel intermixed and intermarried with the foreigners. And so to the, to the southern kingdom, to, the Judah, to folks in Judah, the Jews down there, they were compromisers. They were, dare I say it, half-breeds. They compromised. They did not follow the Old Testament law by marrying only Jews. And there was quite a bit of animosity that built up between Samaritans and Jews over the many hundreds of years that this was all going on. The southern kingdom of Judah resented foreigners living in what they viewed as part of God's promised land, the land promised to Israel. They resented foreigners living there. Uh, Jews and Samaritans did not get along, and when uh, later on, when Babylon conquered the southern kingdom and deported them, and they were given the opportunity to go back to the southern kingdom, the Jews were, and to rebuild. Those in the region of Samaria kind of resisted that. That's, you can find that in Ezra 4, Nehemiah 4. 
um, they resisted. They, they threw up the red flag and said, ah, this isn't a good idea, king. They tried to put a stop to it. There's, there's a lot of instances. If you go back and study your history, there's a lot of instances. In one instance, sometime after Jesus was born, but before he started his earthly ministry, some Samaritans broke their way into the temple and scattered uh, human bones in the temple, desecrating it. These people did not get along. And yet, and yet, we're already seeing in the ministry of Philip and today in the ministry of Peter, the gospel is going to Samaria. The gospel is bringing together people from the Jews and people from the Samaritans who, have, who couldn't be more distasteful of each other, but have one thing in common. They've experienced the love, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And they've decided to walk in his way. It's powerful stuff. This, this uh, Christianity, this following of Jesus, it can break down barriers like this. Next we see an uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch was a Gentile. He's not even half Jewish. He's not even a tenth Jewish. He's a, he's a Gentile. The Bible tells us that he was a God-fearer. He was a proselytite, so he had made his way to Jerusalem to worship God. But he was a Gentile, and uh, he received the gospel and was baptized, but probably made his way back to Ethiopia. In other words, he was not trying to join or fit into the church at the time. And then we see, as part of our transition update, uh, the conversion of Saul, right? Saul. Saul wasn't just any Jew. He was, a, he was part of the establishment, you know, the established religious authorities. He was a Pharisee. He was an educated man. And he came to Christ and began to minister and to teach in the synagogues and to do all these things. So you see the transition that's getting ready, that's going on here. Now, very important to understand in our passage today. Next week, when we start getting into Acts chapter 10, we're going to see the door of the gospel opening wide to the Gentiles, to everybody who's not Jewish or even partly Jewish. And folks, I got to tell you, that it's hard for me to articulate to you what that would be like to, the, to a Jewish audience. To say the good news of Jesus, that God's son, God, you know, the founder of the Old Testament religious system and all the sacrifices, the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, that same God sent his son to die not just for the Jews, also for the Samaritans, and also for everybody else. It would have been mind-warping. It would have been difficult to swallow. Imagine, I'm going to just throw up something crazy. You know, imagine that tomorrow the leadership of this country uh, announced that um, South Korea... No, 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 sorry. North Korea, very important distinction. North Korea is joining the United States, effective immediately. How many thousand questions do you have? Like, whoa, uh, are you, is, Kim, is the leader Kim Jong-un, is he a senator now? Is he, is there, are they going to be accept, expected to join our form of government? Are we going to join their? See all the complicating, how is this going to work culturally? They're across the ocean, how is that going to work? It's complicated. And our God, our amazing, awesome, powerful, sovereign God, is orchestrating his leadership, using his leadership to lead his people through this change. From the gospel being kind of a Jewish thing to the gospel being a fulfillment, I believe, of the Abrahamic covenant where God told Abraham, in you all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed, right? Israel never, the nation of Israel never really were that to the world. But Jesus, who came out of the Jewish nation, who is God in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins, that movement started by him in his name is going to go now to everyone. 
And here's how God is going to do it. First thing that God's going to do in our text this morning is he's, uh, let me just say one more thing. I I made the observation this past week as I was studying this, that this is a reversal of the Tower of Babel, these Gentiles coming in. What do I mean by that? In Genesis chapter 11, if if you remember Genesis chapter 11, uh, the people on the earth, this is after the flood, the people on the earth get together and they say, come, let us bake bricks and let us build a tower to the heavens that we may make a name and let us make a name for who? Ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Uh, hint, if you're new to this, uh, we're not here to make a name for ourselves. So God confused their languages and then they scattered all over the earth according to their language groups. You, you know the rest of the story. But now, we're seeing a reversal of the Tower of Babel in the gospel message. We're seeing people, the Bible talks about this, from every tribe and tongue and nation coming together to make a name for not ourselves, but in Jesus' name. Right? It's incredible what's going on in the book of Acts. It's incredible. And if you think about what's, what's happening on our earth today as people get more and more increasingly fragmented and, and separated and, and are getting into their individual identities and silos and stuff, um, this is our reminder that our work is to proclaim the name of Jesus and to bring all who will into the fold, into uh, faith in Jesus Christ and into the church. Okay, so how is God going to manage this change? First of all, he's going to establish authority. He's going to establish authority. Now, we're going to talk about the text, but let me just lay some groundwork here. How, how do we, when we talk authoritatively today about anything, when we say, look, this is the truth, where do we ground that? Where, where is our authority to say that? Well, we, get our, we derive our authority from the Bible, right? And it helps, I, I would, I'm just adding this, it helps if what we say we believe, what we say is true, is also lived out in our lives. That is what I'm calling our testimony. Let me move some stuff around here so I don't hurt myself, which is a distinct possibility today. Isn't that better? Oh, man, I feel like I have all this space now. It's not going to be a mic stand whacking me. But <clears throat> what do I mean by that? I mean, um, when you find someone whether they be a Christian or of any other religion, who says, this is the truth, this is what I believe, and yet they're not practicing it, it feels phony. It's a sham. It doesn't have the look and feel or any authenticity to it at all. But when you find someone who says, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe that this is his word, and they're doing, not perfectly, but they're doing their best to live according to it, and they put together a track record of so when they speak there's a little bit more weight there let's just be honest there's a little bit more weight there and so we read passages like this by this all people by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another right love god love others make disciples in other words how we treat each other in our congregation is a testimony to the outside world a very powerful one, I would argue. Uh, Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your light before uh, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, let's just keep in mind: Peter has the same text of Scripture that the Jews have at this moment in in the text. He's got the Old Testament. The New Testament is not written yet. So how is God, because Peter is going to be the one that God uses to open this door to the Gentiles, right? So how is God going to remind everyone one more time that Peter is not operating in his own authority, but in the authority of Jesus Christ before he swings open this door in Acts chapter 10? It's going to blow your mind. I'm just going to tell you, it's going to blow your mind. Uh, With no New Testament, Peter relies solely on his actions. Okay, so what is God going to have Peter do? Let's get into the text, Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came also to the saints who lived at Lydda. This is a Samaritan town. He's operating in Samaria, okay? 
There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Take your Bibles and flip to Luke chapter 5. Whether you know this or not, you probably do. You're, probably, you're smart. You're smart folks. This is a throwback passage. In other words, Peter is mimicking something that Jesus has already done. He's, he's repeating almost identically what Jesus did in Luke 5.17 through 26. Let me just read that to you. Luke 5.17 through 26. On one of those days, he, Jesus, was teaching. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing uh, on a bed a man who was paralyzed. Peter just healed a guy who was paralyzed. This guy's paralyzed. As they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus, into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is critically important. If you don't get anything else out of this message, focus like a laser beam right now. Smack yourself around if you need to. Take your Bible and close it on your hand to wake you up. Okay, whatever you need to do, focus. And verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that would have been an incredibly provocative statement, as is what follows going to be said. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who could forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Think about the situation, folks. You've got a paralyzed guy laying on the floor. He's been lowered in through the roof. And he, and he says to the guy, oh, your sins are forgiven you. And they're all scoffing, the Pharisees and the scribes. They're talking amongst themselves. This is bad. Nobody can do this but God. I love, nobody can do this but God. So then he says to them, what's harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? I would argue it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can just say those words and how would they know, right? How would they know? But still, in their theological framework, that was a big deal that he said that because he's they don't believe him to be God, and they think that only God can forgive sins. Why do you question in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is saying, so that you know I can forgive sins. I have the authority to do so. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately... He rose before them and picked up what, had, what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This passage in Acts chapter 9, what Peter is doing is identical to what Jesus did with one key difference. Flip back to Acts chapter 9. Verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Folks, see the connections that I'm trying to make here. Jesus Christ, Jesus is God. He is the Christ. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. He demonstrated that he has the power to forgive sins by doing something that no one else could do in healing the paralyzed man. And Peter is operating in the same authority as Jesus. He's operating in Jesus' authority by doing this very same task 
healing a paralyzed man, but doing so in Jesus' name. This is establishing, I believe, Peter's authority to do what he's going to do next. Shall we read on? Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Here's another episode. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I don't know a lot of ladies named Dorcas, but did you know that our math teacher, one of our math teachers at school is named Dorcas? Dorcas Art? It means, the name Dorcas and Tabitha mean the same thing, but just in two different languages. It means a doe or a gazelle. Think of Song of Solomon, right? Uh, a doe or a gazelle. Anyway, um, it's a pretty name. Anyway, uh, she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they washed her, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Totally, totally normal when, a, when somebody dies to wash their body to prepare for burial. Totally normal. What's not so normal is to take the body and put it in an upper room. In those days, without the advent of modern embalming technology and preservation stuff, bodies begin to decompose pretty quickly. And so there's kind of a sense of urgency to get the body into the grave. They don't do that. They instead put her in an upper room. Why? I don't know. Uh, the, I think the text is going to tell us. <clears throat> Verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men urging him, please come to us without delay. See, they knew Peter was near and that Peter was operating in the power of Jesus Christ and so, in faith, they sent him. Verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Funny story. This is just something that we as human beings do. The, the, the things that the, 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 dead, the dead person made, especially if those were made as acts of service and kindness, those take on new meaning, right, when people die. We cherish them more. Uh, I had a friend back in the old church, back at Bethel Bible Church in Indiana. Her name was Ann Fagner. Wonderful lady. She had been through a lot. Uh, her boys were kind of ornery. Her husband died of Lou Gehrig's disease. Marshall was a fantastic guy. Wonderful church member. Um, I think he worked for the state highway department, and he was a hoot. Anyway, she was a widow, and she opened a quilting store in town. And she was fantastic with her hands. Her gift was always acts of service. Was, if there was something to be done in the church that required the use of her hands, cooking, sewing, anything like that, top notch. Anyway, uh, Anne opened a quilting store where she made quilts. She also sold quilting materials and taught other ladies how to quilt in workshops that, you know, she earned some money that way. And, um, and then I think she also had a ministry on the side where she and some ladies from church made some quilts for people in need to encourage them. Well, Anne died uh, of COVID pretty quickly uh, in the, in the, when the pandemic started. I made my way over to visit because she was... I just felt, I felt compelled because of her, the model of her service to the church compelled me to drive five hours over there for the visitation and the uh, funeral. Anyway, um, I go in, you know, it was right when COVID was getting started, we didn't know what we were doing. So you, you were only allowed to go into the church and see Anne, like five at a time with masks on, and, and I went in there, and I, and I go into the auditorium, and imagine that, you know, Anne is, is laying here in the casket, and surrounding the room, just quilts and other things that she had made for other people as a testimony of her service to them. It's quite touching. So anyway, that's what, I, that's what I'm imagining is going on here. Um, verse 40, but Peter put them all outside, and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand, and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented 
her alive, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. FYI, this is another, this is another foreshadowing of what's to come. The gospel is going to be open to the Gentiles. Jews don't stay with tanners. They are considered unclean, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean because of all the, the dead animals that they are processing, touching, unclean animals. Um, and here we see a Jew, Peter, staying with one Simon, a tanner. Now, I didn't want to emphasize the tanner thing too much. Flip back in your Bible to Luke chapter 8. Because this is another parallel. This is another throwback to something that Jesus did. Luke chapter 8, verse 41. Luke chapter 8, verse 41. You know the story. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only a daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. We've got to skip the next part and go to verse 49. While, she, while he was still speaking, Luke 9, 49, or 8, 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler's house, Jairus' house, and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father of the mother, father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. This next line is kind of interesting. And they laughed at him. There's a lot there. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. They're still operating their lives under the idea that God is not able. That a sinner who is so given over to their sin cannot be saved, that a dead person cannot rise, that a paralytic cannot walk again, they are committed to the idea that they know what's going on and that God is not able. So they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand and calling, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, Child, arise. In Mark's gospel, there's, th this passage is parallel to Mark's gospel. And we learn the name of the girl and we also learn how, what he said in, uh, I believe, Aramaic. The name of the girl's the name the girl's name is Talitha, and he says to her, Talitha Kume. Talitha, arise. Verse fifty-five. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and she directed, he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, and he charged them to tell no one what happened. Talitha Kume. Back to Acts chapter 9. The difference in the, the name Talitha and Tabitha, just so you know, is one letter. And Peter also said, Tabitha, kume. Tabitha, arise. You see what's going on here? These passages are designed to make you think back to Jesus and his authority over not only the physical ailment of, of being paralyzed, the, the physical death of a person, but also his authority over sin and the, the reality that he is able to forgive it. In other words, I think this passage, this passage at the end of Acts chapter 9 is establishing Peter's authority that, that when he does go to open the door to the Gentiles, people will say, that's the Peter that raised the paralytic. That's the Peter that raised the dead. That's the same Peter who is operating in Jesus' name. And it's, he does the impossible, right? 
in 2022, today, we have all this medical technology. We still can't raise the dead. I'm not talking about a person who's being worked on in the ER and, and they've become legally dead for a few minutes. I'm talking about somebody who's been dead, laying in an upper room after having their body prepared in washing. That took some time. And I'm not talking about you know, somebody who's got some spinal cord damage who gets some therapy in our modern medicine today, gets some therapy and regains some use of their legs. I'm talking about somebody who's paralyzed for their whole life. Jesus or Peter says, get up and walk. They get up and they're fully restored. We don't see that ever. And so he's doing the impossible. This is, in effect, I've said it before, I, it's a different way of saying it. It's a reprise, right? In a song, a, a reprise in a song is, you know, you're going back and repeating something that you've done before. Have you ever noticed that, have you ever noticed that we as people, we really like when something that's happened in the past repeats itself? and kind of provides a connection back to that thing. Here's a really dumb example. Um, when I was a kid, the biggest blockbuster summer movie of all times in my childhood was Top Gun, okay? You know, the jet fighter movie. Well, a new one came out. I don't know how many years later, a lot of years later, because I'm old now and I got no hair. But the Top Gun movie came out and my wife and I, we went and saw the Top Gun movie. You know how many things are connections back to the first movie? I mean, there's, they're just all over the place. And it just, take, it just makes me feel like a kid again, you know, going back. and I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but there are multiple connection points back in that movie. The same thing applies to like music and stuff. I was watching an interview recently with Billy Joel, if you know who that guy is. And Billy Joel said this, he said, if I go give a concert and I don't sing one particular song, the audience gets very upset. You know what song it is? Piano Man. Okay. I cannot give a concert. I hate that song. He's like, I hate that song. It's so simple. I mean, I wrote it, but it's like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It just repeats over and over again. It's really, but if I don't sing that song in concert, the people get, you know, the people get upset. They feel like they haven't gotten their money's worth. So I got to sing it every single time. There's something about us as human beings. And so when Peter heals this paralytic, it's a throwback to what Jesus did. It, it, it lets everybody know, oh, this is Jesus guy. He's operating in Jesus' name. When he raises the woman from the dead, oh, this is like what Jesus did. It's, it's also a picture of the body of Christ becoming reality. The body, we, we throw this term around a lot. We say the church is the body of Christ because we say that because the Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. But what do we see here? Jesus, at this point in the book of Acts, he has ascended into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Who's left? His people. The, the ones that we call Christians, right? And so what do we see Peter doing? We see Peter being the literal hands and feet, doing the things that Jesus used to do with his hands and feet and his mouth on the earth. Now Peter is doing with his hands and feet and mouth the things that Jesus used to do on the earth. It's a wonderful picture of that, right? I think people think uh, the body of Christ is some ethereal, like theological concept. No, when you... When you go to someone else in the body and you comfort them because they're hurting. I, I, had a, I got word yesterday that a friend of mine back from the old church died suddenly, you know, mid-60s. He passed away suddenly in his office of a heart attack. And I got close with his daughter because she was in our youth group. And I reached out to her last night and sent her a text and said, hey, you know, I'd love to talk to you, praying for you, whatever. I'm so sorry that your dad, dad passed away. She's, uh, I think she's in her mid-20s. And... Uh, I was being Jesus to her. That's the thing that we have in common. I love Jesus. She loves Jesus. We both love Jesus. Jesus is not going to talk to her audibly or through a text message, right? He's going to talk to her through his word. But I can, I can do that. I can say, sister, I am so sorry that this happened. Selfishly, uh, 
praise the Lord because that guy was a believer and he's in heaven right now. And, uh, but this is an example of the body of Christ becoming a reality. It's also an example of the student becoming like the master, right? Like Luke 6.40 says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Every disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. And then finally, we see Peter breaking down old norms. Again, change is happening, right? The whole Jewish sacrificial system that Peter grew up in is going away. The temple, uh, the Jewish dietary laws, all these things are going away and a new age is being ushered in and God is using Peter to do it. It's very uncomfortable. It's very dissettling. There's some evidences of it that we see uh, already in the book of Acts, like Acts 2.42. It says that they, these are the new followers of Jesus, they devoted themselves to what? They did not devote themselves to the Old Testament teachings, the Old Testament law, the going to Jerusalem to make sacrifices. No, they, de they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Later on in Hebrews 10, I invite you to turn there now. Later on in Hebrews 10, we're gonna, the writer of Hebrews is going to kind of signal to us why this, is all, this was all necessary. The writer of Hebrews says this, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never... By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But, since these, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you, take, you have taken no pleasure. But then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. All these things, all of these things are pointing to a new reality. We're getting away from the old covenant that God gave with Moses. Covenant that's written about in... in um, Deuteronomy 28, where God says, if you obey me, you will experience all these blessings. But if you disobey me, you will, you will receive all these curses. Deuteronomy 28, you can read that. It's one chapter. Despite the fact that God had led them out of Israel, with a might, out of Egypt, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, right? Despite all these things. Despite the fact that God had told them in Deuteronomy 28, listen, obey me and, I, and life is going to be really wonderful for you. Disobey me at your own peril. It's going to be cursing for you. Israel showed time and time again, time and time again throughout all of its history, it couldn't do it. God was always faithful to them. They were always faithless to him. You see it in the book of Judges in this just never-ending cycle of, you know, repent, be saved, fall into idol worship, and experience curses. Call out to God, repent, be rescued, fall back into idol worship and sin, you know, be conquered again. Over and over in the book of Judges it goes. Even in the heyday of Israel, the heyday, the golden age, considered by many to be the, the reign of King David and the reign of King Solomon, what do we see? We see David... A man who could not remain faithful to God. And Solomon, same thing. And so God makes a new covenant with his people. It's not a conditional covenant like the old covenant in Deuteronomy 28, where if you do right, good things will happen. If you do wrong, curses will happen. But God makes a new covenant with his people. Turn to Jeremiah 31. We'll end here. 
Well, we'll end here before application. Jeremiah 31. Many of you know this passage. Jeremiah 31, 31. Easy to remember, easy to remember the reference. Jeremiah 31, 31. The prophet Jeremiah promised this. You know, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He wrote lamentations. He saw Israel in its worst. And he said this. God inspired him to write this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one say to his neighbor and each his brothers, sorry, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God has done something so much greater in Jesus Christ than he did in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was designed to point the way to our need for Jesus Christ. Then Jesus comes on the scene. Now Acts is the transition that begins to get us there. Begins to say, let's abandon the old way this conditional covenant, the old covenant, and let's uh, embrace what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's table and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's not a conditional covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. God is going to save in Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. And this is our God, tenderly, loving, lovingly leading us, leading his people into this change that's going to happen, where the door of the gospel message is going to be swung wide open for everyone, not just Jews, not just Samaritans, but for everyone who would call on the name of Jesus. Every tribe, tongue, nation, culture, everyone. So, how does Peter's ministry in Acts 9 prepare us for the expansion of the church? It does so by... Peter's ministry in Acts 9 prepares us for the expansion of the church to include Gentiles by reaffirming his authority, not just his authority as Peter, but his authority in the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ. Everything Jesus taught, stood for, everything. And so when Peter, uh, in the next chapter swings open that door to the Gentiles, we can know that it was Jesus in, in Jesus' authority is what he's doing and how he's doing it. In terms of application, there's just a couple of things I'd like to share with you. And I feel like I'm a broken record sometimes. Um, and so um, just know that uh, you're going to hear another skip on the broken record. Um, but, but let me say this. We live in a very cynical world, in a world that it, the temptation is to hate those who are not like you, to, to get into your silo of people that you agree with and stay there. And that is not the gospel call. It's not. We come into this place on Sunday morning. We enjoy fellowship amongst the brothers and the sisters. We get encouraged by joining our voices together in songs to the Lord, praising Him for all the wonderful things that He's done. We take time to remember the tremendous gift of Jesus Christ, the good news that our sins are forgiven and that we can now walk in new life, right? We listen to a, a chunk of the scriptures being exposited and applied, hopefully receptively, as, as we, and then we leave and we go out there to every tribe, tongue, and nation, to people who have varying different beliefs, 
and we practice our mission statement. We love God. We love others. We make disciples. In order to do that, we have to know the word and we have to live the word. Again, our authority rests in our, in our, in our understanding of God's word and in our testimony so that we can share it with others. And so, again, are you regularly taking in? Are you regularly studying? Are you putting into practice God's word? Are you turning away from your sin? Are you growing and changing and becoming more like Christ? So that when people see you, they don't see Scott Deavy or whatever, you're gonna, fill in the blank of your name. They see a person who's been radically transformed and, and is something totally befuddling to the world. We're loving people in such a way that, that people say, why would you do that? There's your opening. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for me and you, by the way. And he instructed me to love. So how can I help? And then finally put into practice what you know, right? Growing and changing will only strengthen your testimony. 1 Timothy 4, 7, 8, one of my most favorite passages in Scripture uh, is this, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, the time wasters, the arguments that are going nowhere, the debates that have no application in the real world that we seem to get sucked into all the time. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train is the word gymnazo. That's where we get gymnasium. I go to the gymnasium to sweat. I don't know about you, which means it's hard work. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. This is your proof text, by the way, for working out. It says right there, bodily training is of some value. There's your proof text. Go to the gym, right? You just don't prioritize your gym time over your spiritual workout because godly godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise of the present life and also for the life to come we serve a god who can heal paralyzed we serve a god who can raise the dead and more importantly we serve a god who can forgive sin and to begin a transforming work in our lives that will have an impact on this world Let's follow Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, and for your word, and for this uh, amazing passage of scripture that reminds us um, of how we can live for you. Thank you for Peter and what he did in raising and uh, healing this paralyzed person. You did it, Lord. You did it through him. In raising this dead woman, you did it, Lord. You did it through him. Lord, the mind boggles to think what you could do through us if we fully yield ourselves to you. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.